0: Hello, and welcome again to Strap 4 Talks. This is a monthly podcast where Strap 4 gives you an insider's look at big issues in global affairs. I'm Marla Moore.
1: And I'm Ben Sheen.
0: And we're your hosts for the show.
1: We have two parts to our podcast today. First, we'll be discussing the Islamic State and the aftermath of the recent terrorist attacks in Paris with security expert Scott Stewart. And then Riva Bala will be here to review Stratfor's 2015 annual forecast report card with a look at the predictions that panned out, the ones that were missed, and some key trends to watch for the coming year.
0: If you have questions for Stratfor analysts or comments to share on this podcast, please drop us a line at stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback, or shoot them our way through Facebook or Twitter. We're at Stratfor.
1: And so now, on with the show.
0: For our last podcast of the year, we'd planned to bring you a fun holiday topic. But a few weeks ago, a wave of terrorist attacks which have been attributed to the Islamic State unfolded in Paris. The repercussions have already been seen and felt on a number of fronts, from the state of emergency declared in France and Belgium to heightened French military actions in Syria and widening political divisions in both France and the rest of the Schengen area.
1: Stratfor called a red alert in the midst of the crisis on November 13th, and we've been receiving lots of feedback on our coverage of the Paris attack and the Islamic State in general. So today, we wanted to acknowledge and respond to some of the comments from our readers. And for that, we're joined now by one of our most senior security analysts... Scott Stewart.
0: And before we begin, uh, Scott, I'd like to just uh, clarify for some of our listeners that uh, we receive tons of email from our readers. And just in case you ever wonder, we actually do read every single one of the emails that we get. A lot of the Paris commentary that we received uh, in the past few weeks was actually linked to a piece that you wrote, before the attacks took place, and it was a piece in which you basically said that time was working against the Islamic State in the Middle East. A lot of people wrote with comments, and they said you, they thought that your analysis might have been hasty or even premature in light of the Paris attacks, but you don't seem to agree with that.
2: Yeah, well, I, and actually, yeah, we even had uh, one uh, writer uh, write in and uh, say that I'm fired. Uh, because he thought that I, I botched it so, so badly. But I think it's important that, that people understand that the strength of a militant group overall, their universal strength, is not necessarily the same as their capability to conduct terrorist attacks. Um, you know, when we look at the kind of the, the militancy spectrum, um, you know, at, at the top end, as far as the, the requirement of resources, we kind of have this you know, taking and holding and governing territory – and then way down at the far end, uh, you know, you you have uh, requiring very few resources is, is conducting terrorist attacks. And then there's of course a range of things in the middle, as as far as conducting conventional warfare, uh, conducting uh, guerrilla warfare, uh, that sort of thing. So so there's really a, a range of, of of capabilities that a militant organization has, and just because they are are losing their capability to function at the high end of the spectrum, um, and in this case with the Islamic State you know, losing territory, losing heavy weapon system, losing you know, thousands of fighters on, on the battlefield, that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't marshal you know, eight or nine guys to conduct an attack somewhere. Um, so, so the two are not mutually exclusive, and both can be true. I think
1: you raise a good point there, Scott, which is actually that for Islamic State, which is an organization with a significant reach, it's actually easier, I guess, in some respects, for them to uh, encourage these sorts of smaller low-level attacks. And they can do that without really stretching themselves, whereas actually for smaller organizations who are very competent at the the, the low-level asymmetric terrorist level, they simply can't do what Islamic State can do on the battlefield. So it, it's a, a way of conceptualizing the attacks, I suppose.
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things that... that um we really see with, with large organizations is, is quite often most of the people they train don't get what we call high-level terrorist tradecraft uh, training. Most of them go to kind of a you know, guerrilla warfare boot camp. Where they learn to throw grenades, uh, you know, handle an AK-47, maybe an RPG, and they jump through, you know, flaming hoops and, and do calisthenics. Th- that's really quite a different level of training and type of training than what you need to carry off sophisticated terrorist uh, attacks. Uh, things like conducting surveillance, things like operational security, uh, clandestine communications, traveling under an alias. Those are, are, are all the kind of more you know, fine motor skills that you require to be a sophisticated terrorist operative. But one of the things that we're seeing with this shift really that, that we've been looking at since 2010 towards uh, armed assaults instead of just you know, terrorist bombing attacks is that these armed assaults allow uh, these basic guerrilla fighters to use the, the tactics and, and the, the skills that they've learned in this basic training uh, to effectiveness in, in terrorist training. So basically, you can give these guys an AK, uh, point them at a mall, or a hotel or a restaurant, and, uh, you know, they, they can kill people. And, and, and that's quite different, uh, you know, from the, the September 11th attacks, or, you know, the, the 93 Trade Center bombing, where, where you needed more sophisticated terrorist tradecraft.
0: Right. And, you know, it's very interesting as we look at what we know today of the Paris attacks that these were eight guys with suicide belts and grenades and and guns, as opposed to 19 guys with fully fueled airliners uh, striking at buildings. But it was still a very effective attack. And can you speak to the types of training that you suspect this particular attack cell may have had? I mean, especially given that at least half of them, as far as we know,
2: were French nationals. Things have changed a little bit as as details have come in uh, on, on the Paris attack. Initially, we thought that all the vests uh, had operated functionally, you know, properly um, had functioned as designed. But uh, subsequent reports have, have showed us that uh, actually several of the divests did not work properly. And indeed, there's reports today that may have even found a suicide belt from that attack in the trash somewhere from one of the operatives. Um, so, so that's changing our assessment a little bit on on the the proficiency of the bomb maker. Um, I mean, it's not unusual for, a you know, kind of a, a junior level bomb maker to, to have a failure rate that's somewhat high uh, in a suicide attack. I mean, even the Al Qaeda in Iraq, Amman hotel bombings back in 2005, we saw about 50% of those devices not function properly. Um, so so that's really to be expected in this kind of attack. And it tells me that, that most, more than likely than not that the, the guys uh, that, that we know of and that you know that, that they're talking about and the as you know, the prime suspects are probably also the ones who created the, the bombs in, instead of some you know master bomb maker who, who really knew what he was doing and had a, a higher level of of competency. But but you know planning this this type of attack they still needed to uh, you know to do so without being caught. That meant they needed to have some secure communications. Uh, they needed to be able to to find and obtain the weapons. They needed to have the financing to, to get those weapons. And then obviously they needed to deploy to the targets they had selected. So, you know, th- there was a, a, a moderate level of, of planning required. But there again, it, it, it doesn't take, uh, you know, Carlos the Jackal, you know, to plan this kind of simple assault on, on a nightclub or, or a restaurant. Um, you just have to kind of do uh, some very low level reconnaissance. And, and then, uh, you know, point these gunmen in the right way or in the right direction. You know, the other thing is, you know, these people are are willing to die uh, in this kind of attack too. And that also makes it easier to plan because you don't have to worry about exfiltration routes and that sort of thing. So when you have a suicide operative, it's, it's really much easier to plan that kind of operation, especially against a soft target.
1: Now, Scott, I think another interesting thing to note is this isn't the first time that Paris has been attacked this year. We saw the Charlie Hebdo attacks uh, towards the start of the year, which again prompted France to to beef up some of its security measures. Now, how much extra security and surveillance do you think France will be enacting after this? Because it seems like regardless of what efforts they've made, the attacks still took place. How difficult is it to really... um, counter these sort of attacks at the planning stage? And, and what do you think France or even, you know, wider Europe will be doing to try and combat this threat in the future?
2: Well, yeah, yeah certainly uh, we not only saw, uh, you know, the Charlie Hebdo and, and the Kosher Delhi attacks in January, but many people missed that there was a, a large plot uh, that was wrapped up in in January about the same time, uh, mid-January. And that was actually a, a multinational plot that spanned Europe that was linked to the Islamic State. We had suspects in Athens. Uh, we had suspects uh, up in, in Belgium, in France, in Germany uh, that, that were looking at these these same kind of attacks. Part of the problem, though, is there are so many potential soft targets that, that even if you know your country is at risk of, of such an attack, you simply can't protect them all. And, and you certainly can't even, uh, you know, utilize some sort of uh, you know, surveillance detection capability or program against every potential soft target, and you know, in in this case, you know, the the security uh, checks at at the soccer stadium appeared to have uh, you know worked properly and, and kept the one attacker out of the, there. But, but overall, having you know so many different targets spread across the geography, it's just very very difficult uh, you know to protect them all, and it's also very difficult to to catch. The surveillance, because it it doesn't require extensive surveillance. I mean, if if you're looking at uh, a more complex attack, uh, you know, say they wanted to try to assassinate the, the French president or or something like that, you need much more detailed surveillance than you do for just you know a, a, a plan to you know send a suicide bomber into the McDonald's or some gunmen into a, a uh, death metal venue. So so as far as the, the planning goes, it, it's really much simpler when you have the, those sorts of, of soft targets. On the other hand, there are also so many potential jihadists out there uh, in, in Europe and specifically in, in France and Belgium that it's impossible for these governments to monitor them all uh, 24-7. What, what they have to do is kind of do a risk analysis and, and focus on those they believe are the most dangerous. And that that uh you know pose the greatest threat to the public, then focus their resources there but but simply covering one person uh, you know 24/7, uh, 365 is an incredible incredible undertaking uh you know you're talking dozens of agents if you if you have uh, real time tell taps, you need interpreters, people monitoring the tell taps, you may even have air assets in place for, from helicopters or fixed wing aircraft to help with the surveillance. So it's really quite quite a large undertaking.
0: And you touch on something also that I think is very important, which is that France itself, as a soft target seems particularly susceptible to this type of an operation from a homegrown or a grassroots type of operative. And this is partly due to France's history as a colonial power, you know, problems with the Muslim diaspora and the particular difficulty. I don't know that I would say that France has had more trouble integrating foreigners into its culture than other European powers, but it certainly has had uh, significant challenges on that front. And we've seen a very restive Muslim population in France itself in the last 5-10 years.
2: Certainly, uh, you know, France does have, uh, and, and they know uh, th- that they do have issues with militancy within, you know, their, their own Muslim populations, uh, especially in, you know, the, the Louise, which are these disadvantaged, you know, heavily ethnic Enclaves uh, where, where you have generations now of of Tunisians and Algerians and Moroccans living. Many of these young men are are angry. They're unemployed or underemployed. Uh, there, there's very little hope. Many of them wander into crime. And in fact, we've we've seen a, a pretty consistent theme of recruitment happening inside uh, French prisons. Uh, and, and a lot of these uh, you know jihadis that are later involved in, in attacks uh, meet in prison. Um, or they knew each other from street gangs uh, when they were up to criminal activities before, um, and then once they get introduced to, to islam, uh, it kind of gives them a purpose in life it gives them a goal, and then they see you know undertaking this this jihadist lifestyle as a way to kind of atone uh you know for for their past crimes and their their past sins, so it kind of gives them a, a a way out as well but yeah all really all across europe uh as as you look at at the figures. Uh, of the foreign fighters in places like Syria, you see that the countries like uh, you know Belgium and, and France and even the UK are, are very heavily represented uh, amongst you know amongst those those numbers. And really, uh, you know, when, when you compare the population of those countries, uh, it's, it's pretty dramatic, you know, compared to the number of say American jihadists uh, that are over there.
1: We know that half the attackers involved in the Paris attacks were actually French nationals themselves. And although um, it's prohibited in French law to, to include religious affiliation on censuses, the estimate is about that 7.5% of France's population is Muslim and of that group, mostly from, from North African extraction. And it's interesting to see how actually you do have some of the, the more poor and isolated groups in not only places like France, but elsewhere, where you do actually have this sort of almost incubator for uh, radicalization. And certainly in France and, you know, the, the wider European area covered by the Schengen agreement, you do actually see communication and passage of people. And again, one of the reasons why the spotlight is on Belgium as a, as a potential
2: sort of transit hub for, for people with, with terrorist intent. Oh, that's that's true. At at the same time, though, we, we do need to to uh, emphasize, though, that, that not all these jihadis are coming from disenfranchised kind of slum areas. A lot of them actually are are well educated, and seemingly well adjusted. Uh, so it really is a conundrum for the authorities when you have, uh, you know, some of these people from from you know what could be considered better families. With you know parents who are engaged, parents who have decent jobs and these kids that have good education, uh, still going off uh, and, and joining the jihad, so it really is a, a, a large and a, a widespread problem and, and something that, that you know, needs to be addressed through these uh, programs to, to counter violent extremism.
0: Well, and what you just said really uh, touches on something else that I, I think might be a very key piece of this, which is the value of propaganda in any sort of a movement. Paris definitely had propaganda value for the Islamic State. I mean, it was broadcast everywhere around the world instantly, pretty much. But what was the strategic value of that strike in relation to the Islamic State's wider goals?
2: Yeah, that's that's the, the the big key there. I mean, when, when you really look at it, it's not just about killing, uh, you know, 120 Frenchmen. It's really about this effort that they have right now to really gain power, uh, gain recruits, uh, gain uh, gain financing, um, as they kind of struggle to to become, you know, the vanguard of the global jihad. And of course, uh, Al Qaeda is, is trying to counter that. Uh, with their own propaganda and their own attacks, as, as we saw in, in, in Bamako. So th- this competition, while it's, it's not the sole motivator for any of these attacks, um, you know they have other reasons for conducting them. Still, the idea of the propaganda, of the recruiting, and the idea of the Islamic State and al-Qaeda competition is really never too far away. Uh, you know, just last Friday we saw the the latest edition of the Islamic State's Dabiq magazine. Uh, it was actually the twelfth edition, and as you read through it, uh, you just cannot help but notice the way that the Islamic State is constantly attacking Al Qaeda ideologically, as as well as a lot of the Al Qaeda, you know, franchise groups in places like the Sahel and and in Yemen, uh, as well as in Syria. So there, there's a lot of ideological uh, underpinnings to all these things as well as, as they struggle for the heart of the jihad, as they struggle for power and, and resources and, and financing so it's it's all kind of tied together there.
1: And I think it's important to remember as well that it's not just the Islamic State that's using this as a propaganda tool. We've seen a lot of uh, extremist parties in Europe, a lot of the the right-wing nationalist parties use the attacks to fuel their own fires, specifically, you know, the anti-immigration movement or uh, trying to demonize Islam in general. And we're actually seeing a lot of these groups use the attacks to try and strengthen their position and gain popular support across the continent.
2: Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, we have seen... Uh, the right-wing nationalists and, and even the far extreme, uh, you know, not just the political parties, but uh, you know, the, the neo-Nazi and, and white supremacist groups, uh, jump on these issues uh, both in in Europe and the United States, and it is a a, a great propaganda boon for them. I think it's important, though, and, and I, I, you know, I, I was very, heartened, I guess, to see the, the the French president Hollande stand up and say, "Hey, you know, I'm." not going to let this change our stance on on refugees and taking refugees into France. We're not going to permit these terrorists uh, to dictate our policies. And I I think that that was a very courageous stand, um, you know, not only against uh, the Islamic state and what they were trying to do, but also Marine Le Pen and and some of the other nationalists who would also uh, be screaming for, uh, you know, this kind of immigration to be halted.
0: Uh, Scott, I'd like to go back to something you said earlier in the conversation, which is that launching a terrorist operation is a lot easier than holding or actually governing territory, uh, which absolutely is true. It doesn't mean that launching a terrorist operation is actually easy, though. I mean, there are degrees of difficulty in all of these things. And when you take A handful of recent events, uh, beginning with the bombing of a Russian airliner out of Sinai, uh, then the Beirut bombings, and then the Paris attacks a few days after that, all linked to the Islamic State. How would you assess the overall strength of the Islamic State today? Is this more than a grassroots operation? How would you define it?
2: Well, I, I think uh, you know, one of the things that we need to understand is, is, for example, when we look at a couple of the different attacks, uh, specifically when we're looking at, at Lebanon and, and the Sinai attack that was conducted by their uh, Sinai province or, or Wilyaf, uh Sinai, um, that, that they are not necessarily uh, Islamic State core. Uh, you know these they, they, basically one of the things that, that we 've seen and, and even though the Islamic state calls their kind of franchise groups uh, provinces, most of them are not really that tightly linked to the Islamic state um, as far as operational leadership and that sort of thing so I, I personally uh, until we see evidence that, that there is a, a direct command. Uh, you know, from Raqqa, the, the Islamic State's capital in Syria, uh, to Sinai to conduct the attack on the the Russian jetliner. You know, I, I just, I doubt uh, quite honestly that, that it was something that was authored and and uh, commanded by the center. I, I think that this is the kind of thing that the Sinai province uh, used to be called Ansar Beda al-Maktis. It is very capable of, in, in their own right, um, from the Accounts that we have of, of security in Sharm el-Sheikh, as, as poor as it is there, the, the graft and corruption of, of the airport staff there, it, it would have been fairly simple to get a relatively crude device aboard an aircraft to detonate it. Um, and indeed, with uh, the release of, of Dabiq magazine last week, we saw a picture of what the Islamic State purports to be the device used in that attack, and, and that came out to be a soft drink can. Uh, along with a an electrical detonator and what looks like to be a you know a, a command switch so it looked to be a very simple device it wasn't some sort of hyper sophisticated very very difficult to detect thing it was just they they used gaps in the security to to get it through there so you know as as far as uh, you know terrorist tradecraft we're not seeing uh, still the high degree of tradecraft that we saw with a group like Al Qaeda in some of their past attacks. That said, uh, you know they do have adherents across a wide uh, swath of, of territory, and they do have a, a lot of followers and a lot of recruits, and uh, they are able to mobilize some of them, uh, you know, for terrorist attacks. And, and definitely, we've seen a number of, of terrorist attacks and and you know specifically armed assaults. Um, over the past what 15 months, uh, starting in October, where we saw attacks, uh, you know, in, in Ottawa, Canada, uh, we saw a hatchet attack in New York. Last summer, we had the Chattanooga attack. Last December, we had the Sydney attack, and then of course the the, the kosher deli attack that coincided with Charlie Hebdo. So uh, it's really not a new thing, and uh, they do have these followers who who can be mobilized. It, it, it's the the good news is if anything is that this is not an existential threat uh to France or the US or the west is it bad uh you know can people die yes and, and and that's terrible and obviously the authorities have to do everything they can uh to stop these kind of attacks but but at the same time uh this is not going to result in the overthrow of, of the French government and the you know establishment of some sort of uh, muslim state and honestly uh, it's also not going to drive uh, France or the United States out of the Levant or the Sahel. These, these countries are, are going to continue to be very involved in counter-jihadist operations.
1: Scott, do you think as we see Islamic State start to suffer increasing losses on the battlefield in Iraq and Syria, that we might see more of these types of terrorist attacks out of pure desperation?
2: I, I believe that, that we could see more terrorist attacks out of desperation, but, but perhaps even more significantly than that, as we see, uh, you know, whether it's uh, their enemies in Syria or whether it's the government in Iraq and, and the other people there closing in on Islamic State holdings, many of these foreign fighters are either going to die in place or are going to leave. And, uh, you know, when they leave, they, they do pose a threat. Of returning, uh, not only with the radicalism that they have, uh, but also some of these battlefield skills that they've learned. Of course, the good news is is that all of them that are, are not all of them that are leaving are going to conduct attacks. We've seen a lot of Muslims who traveled to Syria and Iraq uh, who have become quite disillusioned with the Islamic State. You know, they, they have seen that the organization kills more Muslims. Uh, Than they do infidels, and even among the infidels, they see the way that, you know, they're killing women, uh, enslaving women, um, and, and killing children. And, and it's not really what they signed up for when they went there. Uh, the problem is it's, it's very difficult sometimes for them to get out of there because the Islamic State will kill what they term deserters. Um, so I, I also think that, uh, you know, in addition to maintaining a high level of vigilance, for these foreign fighters, especially those who may be more inclined uh, you know, to keep their radicalism and try to attack. But I think that, that countries in the West also need to start thinking about an exit strategy for these people, um, a way to kind of get them through their radicalism um, and help them reintegrate with society uh, so that they don't become dead enders with their you know, only uh, hope in life is, is to conduct some sort of attack so I think it's it's important to give them alternatives.
0: Right. Well, and I would tend to agree with you if if there's going to be any future after the Islamic State for anyone. And going back to something that you were discussing earlier, we started this with a discussion about uh, some of our reader feedback here internally at Stratfor, and I'd like to note that you've written a, a number of articles on personal security that have been very much appreciated by many of our readers in the last few weeks, and there seems to be an undercurrent coming through some of the responses that we've gotten that really questions Uh, with a high degree of sincerity, what is the likelihood that something like the Paris attacks could take place in the United States? Um, How would you assess that?
2: I I would assess it by saying it's already happened here, uh, just on a smaller scale. Uh, You know, we we had the Chattanooga shootings. So it's definitely possible. We we have, and we know, there are Islamic State sympathizers within the United States. We are seeing uh, jihadists rolled up. Fairly frequently by the, U, by the U.S. government, um, those that are either trying to travel or trying to plot attacks here. And, and frankly, it's only a matter of time uh, until one of them doesn't get rolled up and is able to pull off an attack. And uh, I also wouldn't be surprised to see an attack in the U.S. where we have multiple operatives, either you know uh, a, a group of guys working as a fire team together, uh, which is quite different from a single active shooter. And, or, even uh, one, of, one of my other fears is that we could have multiple fire teams uh, hitting soft targets in a city. And that's a nightmare uh, for, for any police department to have to deal with. But certainly, you know, we urge our, our readers to practice uh, good, sustainable situational awareness uh, wherever and whenever they are. I mean, the world's a dangerous place, and jihadis are not the only threat out there. Um, you know, there's, there's all Different kinds of criminals that uh, that like to prey upon easy targets, and so we, we want to try to help our our readers become harder targets uh, so that these criminals will divert to someone else. And obviously, if you're practicing good situational awareness, if you can see an attack coming, uh, you can then take steps to avoid it. Uh, and then uh, obviously, if if you do, uh, if if an attack is launched and you can't avoid it, uh, as we've written in the past. Uh, you, know, you can take the steps to react appropriately to that danger instead of freezing up. But, but even then, having the right mindset and having the, the right level of situational awareness helps you so you don't freeze at that crucial moment. It allows you to understand that you have to take action and then do something, you know, kind of put into, put into action that, that mantra we've talked about of, of run, hide, fight. And uh, you know, we saw that uh, just over this this last weekend with the Bamako Mali attacks. And there were several reports of people uh, who ran out of the hotel when the attackers came in. Others who couldn't get out, but who sheltered in place in their hotel rooms. So we kind of, you know, we saw the run and the hide legs of that of that mantra really play a part in keeping people alive in Mali, and that's a good thing.
0: Uh, Scott Stewart, everyone, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: So, unless you've completely stumbled upon us by accident, it should be well known that Stratfor is known for its forecasting. The annual forecast is our flagship product, where Stratfor lays out some of our key predictions for the year ahead. We then follow up every few months with our quarterly forecasts. With us here today to discuss the 2015 forecast and to look ahead to 2016 is Stratfor's senior analyst, Reva Bala. Reva, welcome and thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you, Ben. Glad to be here.
0: One of the things that we do that's fairly unique at Stratfor is we actually publish a scorecard of our past forecasts and the accuracy of some of the predictions that we've made. And I'd like to start by just asking you if you can sort of step through how that process works every year and why is that key to our analytical methodology here at Stratfor?
3: Well, it's important to be honest with yourself when you're forecasting. You know, it takes a lot of guts to make big calls. And if we don't actually grade ourselves at the end of the year and say, "Okay, did we or did we not paint a pretty good picture of what the year held? Then we're not doing our jobs right. And so it's very easy, uh, you know, in the media and elsewhere to kind of cover up uh, when you make errors and wrong calls or explain them away but within Stratford, we're we're brutally honest with ourselves and it's important for us to go through a pretty rigorous process where we have multiple arms of the of the company not just the analysts but also our other area specialists who are based all over the world um to look at our forecast and based on what they hear and read give us their assessment their grade of wh- whether we were right or wrong in the end
0: and how did that Turn out for us this year. We're in the throes of our 2016 annual forecast. Uh, How would you grade our key calls for the 2015 forecast?
3: I think overall Stratfor does come out with at least an A minus. You know, we we essentially laid out the core themes of 2015. Um, you know, there were some slight misses here and there. You know, the timing is always a tricky thing with the annual forecast, which is really designed to lay out those broader strokes um, of the forecast for the year. And then the quarterly forecasts are designed to, to update that annual and make sure that we're capturing those emerging trends.
1: Seeing how much Moscow has sought to influence 2015, the former Soviet Union seems like a good place to start when it comes to discussing how the year played out. Reva, what are some of our key takeaways from Russia in 2015?
3: Well, if you remember, at the end of 2014, things were looking pretty intense between Russia and the United States and the West overall. And what we had forecast was that the overall standoff between Russia and the West would de-escalate, though it would persist in the end. And I think that that captured overall the main theme for 2015, because we had done the military analysis to understand what are Putin's options in the former Soviet sphere, and we came to the conclusion based on that study that the costs would outweigh the benefits, and that Russia would not be making any big military pushes into Ukraine beyond what it had already done. Uh, the Baltics are elsewhere, and so instead. Uh, As we had forecast, Russia would leverage the frozen conflict in eastern Ukraine. And that was the main tool that Russia used throughout the year to dial up pressure and dial down pressure with the West as it needed. Where it got a little tricky was the question of sanctions. And, um, you know, what we had underestimated was just how far or I guess the constraints on Kiev at the end of the day Um, when it came to their ability to deliver on any concessions if Russia were to de-escalate the situation on the battlefield. And that's where we're essentially in gridlock. So whereas we thought Russia had a chance uh, to get the Europeans to ease sanctions uh, during the year, instead the Europeans got creative like they always do and extended the sanctions, and they're extending them just by six-month periods at this point. And it took a, a unanimous vote by the Europeans to do that. We thought it would be more difficult uh, for for the Europeans to get that consensus. But with the Minsk Agreement unfulfilled, uh, we've seen Europe develop enough of a of a coherent position on the sanctions policy, especially when they can just simply extend them.
0: Well, another front where Russia has been very active, and we we had a very concrete call on this was. Uh, on the other side of the U.S. and Syria, how have we seen that playing out and how would you grade that particular forecast?
3: Yeah. And in 2014, we were keeping a very close eye on Bogdanov, a a Russian official who was working very heavily behind the scenes on the Syrian portfolio. And the reason why we were paying close attention to that was because we saw Russia developing plans to use Syria as a way to position itself as sort of the grand mediator in the Middle East um, and then leverage that in this broader negotiation it had with the United States. And that certainly turned out to be the case um, where not only has Russia positioned itself as the only one who can really bring about uh, a power sharing agreement in Syria, but it even went to the extra mile in um, actually getting militarily involved in Syria and uh, making itself so obtrusive on the battlefield in Syria that the United States simply could not avoid sitting down uh, with Russia in a dialogue. And so there are still huge constraints on that negotiation overall. But I think we we called correctly how Russia would use Syria in particular to try to at least set up that negotiation with Washington.
1: And it's interesting looking at Syria, because in many respects, Syria has seen for us a a confluence of Of many nations that we track closely, from uh, obviously what the Russians are doing to Iran, the United States, the Jordanians, the Saudis, everyone has a stake in in Syria, Uh, not least of which obviously the Syrians themselves and and what we think the country might look like uh, in a few years. But a player very close to Syria, Turkey, actually they're a kind of key stakeholder when it comes to Syria itself. What have we seen from, from Ankara this year?
3: For 2015, we said that Turkey would largely maintain a defensive posture on its border with Syria. And that was true. Um, you know, Turkey had a lot going on politically in 2015, going through two elections. Um, and, you know, it was a pretty politically volatile year for the country overall. And we knew that it would take time for Turkey to develop um, both the political will and um, the diplomatic environment to be able to do more in northern Syria. Uh, and so this is, I think, more of a question for 2016 is, as we've updated in our quarterly forecasts, Turkey is positioning itself to get more militarily involved in northern Syria. And I think that's going to be one of our key themes looking into this coming year. Well, it's
0: very difficult to talk about Turkey or Syria not uh, mentally go rather quickly toward Europe at this point in time. And uh, one of our forecasts had to do with, uh, you know, the fate of the Eurozone with regard to Greece and Germany. Uh, can you delve into that a little bit? And, and was that off or, or mostly on?
3: We were correct in saying that Greece would be facing a politically volatile year, but in the end, that Greece would not leave the Eurozone. We were quite definitive in that. And surely uh, Europe got a good scare in 2015 with the debate over Grexit growing louder and louder, where even German finance minister Schäuble would come out and openly discuss the possibility of a Grexit. So we did come close to that brink, but in the end, a compromise resulted but, you know, so we we captured the that part of the forecast correctly, um, as well as the rise of anti-establishment forces, a continuing trend in Europe where we got a little off track was on Germany and its decision in in basically acceding to other Europeans push for quantitative easing. We thought the Germans would resist for longer than they did. Um, Instead, we saw quantitative easing introduced in Europe quite early in the year.
0: Well, and that's left uh, Angela Merkel in in something of a difficult position as the year comes to a close and and looking forward through 2016. How do you see that trend playing out?
3: Well, we we did look at is how those migrant flows were going to influence the rise of anti-establishment parties in Europe. And indeed, we're seeing that rise in nationalist and Euroskeptic parties across the board, Angela Merkel is now facing an open rebellion within not only her own coalition, but within her own cabinet over the migrant policy. This is going to be a very key theme now going into 2016 in how Germany manages the Eurozone, the the management of the migrant crisis overall, and just the politics within Germany going into 2017 elections.
1: So changing tack slightly to look at what we've seen from the energy markets, what sort of year was 2015 for, for global production and actually oil markets in general?
3: Well, unsurprisingly, uh, we, we did see oil prices remain low throughout the year. And that uh, really fit into our core forecast that OPEC would not cut production. Uh, essentially, Saudi Arabia would not want to subsidize U.S. shale producers. And as a result, um, we've seen U.S. production now taper off um, down into, into the final months of the year. Overall, we said that the oil markets would remain oversupplied. Uh, and that was the case for for the global oil market. And now going into next year, we're seeing a lot of those conditions remain.
0: Well, it really has shaped up into quite a large and, and I would think a long running trend of this destabilization effect of the lower oil prices and how that turns the table on countries like Russia, for example, that had been um, very dominant on the energy scene. And now they're in a, a financial crisis of some degree or another. How do you see um, that trend continuing to play out, not only with Russia, but also with countries like China?
3: Well, two different pictures there, right? For for Russia, uh, the persistently low price of oil is, of course, not a good thing. And we saw Russia under a lot of economic stress. But we also looked at the numbers and said, OK, Russia will be drawing enough down from its reserves uh, to be able to muddle through the year, um, which it did. And now we see Russia in the throes of a huge debate within the Kremlin over how to spend, um, their, their, their remaining funds on giant priorities, um, everything from, Uh, defense to, uh, you know, long pending privatization plans. And so there's a lot to be done. Uh, But, you know, Russia still has very large reserves. So now uh, the problem for Russia is that is its foreign policy commitments remain very large. Uh, at the same time having to cut spending when it can't afford to. And so this is really going to feed into that Kremlin power struggle moving ahead where you have different factions with very different ideas on where that money should be spent. Now, China, on the other hand, has, has benefited from the lower price of oil, has been replenishing its reserves, and the, the Gulf states were happy to oblige. Um, but, you know, China, of course, had a, a rough economic year as we anticipated. We knew a number of different reforms would be discussed, uh, very openly, but, you know, actual implementation of this, those reforms is a totally different story. We're still seeing immense, uh, you know, overcapacity in a number of key industries in China. Um, and that has a sagging effect on the housing sector, which feeds into the construction sector and and, and just weighs down China overall. Um, so we we had that picture correct on China from uh, the higher level. What we failed to identify in the annual forecast, but did pick up in the quarterly forecasts, was China's major drive in 2015 Uh, toward yuan liberalization overall as a theme um, in preparing for the November 30th deadline for the IMF to decide whether to include the RMB uh, in the IMF's uh, special drawing rights. And so that was a very big um, milestone for for the Chinese. And so we did see uh, a lot in terms of Chinese financial linkages opening up, and that's raised the question of how much further China will go Um, We think the IMF deadline was a really key driver for that in 2015, but going into 2016 and given the risks that China faces overall in liberalizing its capital markets, China's still going in that direction, but it can afford to slow down.
1: China's not the only country that's had its own share of economic problems this year. We've seen countries such as Venezuela have had to weather, you know, quite severe economic storms in their own right.
3: We knew given the low oil price that Venezuela, of course, would be very much at risk um, economically, socially and politically in 2015. What we underestimated, though, was the role that the elections would play in taming social unrest. And we saw that Venezuela's opposition, which is quite fragmented overall, um, you know, they saw the elections as an important enough event to where they didn't see it as worth it to Uh, carry out large demonstrations um, and wanted to ensure that they didn't give the government any excuse to cancel those elections. And so we thought there was greater potential for more social unrest in the year. It was actually relatively calm in spite of, um, you know, the economic calamity that that continues in the country. Now, going into 2016, that's going to look a bit different because you don't have the elections influencing protesters and would-be protesters. And so when that restraint is lifted um, and the economy continues to worsen, Venezuela is facing into a more difficult year when it comes to not just the social unrest, but also the security response to that unrest. Right. I mean,
0: I would imagine that, um, you know, the the elections are actually in just a very few days and uh, it's going to be open road from there for protesters and, and for opposition movements, whereas the economic situation isn't getting better. They're still in a, in a situation with rolling blackouts and food shortages and, and the fallout of the Chavez uh, regime.
3: Absolutely. And, and during the year, there was a lot of speculation that Venezuela um, and the ruling PSUV party would, um, you know, maybe call off the elections altogether, um, afraid that they would be facing huge electoral losses. We had forecast, though, during the year that no, Venezuela would go ahead with this election. Um, they would not want to risk the social backlash of cancelling it, um, but that the country and the government would find other ways to try to manage an opposition, even in spite of those electoral losses that are expected.
1: If we, if we talked about everywhere that, that, that we'd looked at in detail over the course of the year, this would be a, a 12-hour podcast rather than a shorter one. But are there any other trends, anything from that stood out from 2015 that, that particularly caught your interest, Reva?
3: I would say that the the confluence of a number of these forecasts it sets up a pretty interesting 2016. So when we look at the endurance of the U.S.-Russia standoff, when we look at how Russia is trying to leverage its position in the Middle East to influence a negotiation with the United States, when we see, uh, you know, Turkey finding more political coherence to move forward with its military plans in northern Syria, um, China's continued stagnation and and that um, surge in nationalist and Euroskeptic sentiment in, in Europe, especially after um, events like the Paris attacks, all of those are connected in, in a number of different ways, um, you know, as stressed economic conditions Um, have political implications, and then we see crises bubble up. And so it's going to be very important to avoid tunnel vision as we go into 2016 and to bear in mind um, just how interconnected each of these themes are um, and how each one is going to be influencing the other um, in a number of different ways.
0: Well, there certainly is a lot more detail to come when the 2016 annual forecast is released uh, coming up in December. So we invite all of our readers, uh, subscribers, and uh, and visitors to be on the lookout for that. And Riva, thank you very much for your time and, and this look back is this uh, at this year in review. Thank you. And that's our show for today. But once again, if you have questions or comments, or if there's a suggestion for a podcast topic you'd like to hear about, Send us your thoughts at strat4.com/podcast/feedback, or you can always hook up with us on social media through Facebook or Twitter, where we're at Strat4.
1: We look forward to reading your responses, and I think all that's left to say is have a fantastic festive period. Stay safe. Keep reading strat4.com.